Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, hey guys, Dr. J. Dr. Santosh here, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And this is Praz the Sandman, using my special medications to stimulate your pleasure senses over the radio waves. Happy Valentine's Day to all you lovers out there, or even just those of you in platonic relationships. I'm looking at you, <laughs> Aristotle and Plato. Or no, Socrates. Socrates. It was Socrates. It wasn't platonic. I'm not starting like this with you tonight. I'm just <laughs> you may not want to start, but we here at Travel Medicine want to make darn sure that you finish. <laughs> and it is once again time for our bi-weekly Journal Club. You guys know I love to do themed holiday episodes and themed journal clubs. And given the most recent holiday, there was a veritable outbreak of stories relating to sexual health that I managed to gather up. Josh, did any of these articles appear in your favorite journal, the Journal of Sexual Health? Oh, you better (laughs) believe they did. Now, I have to say, in the past, we have used our Valentine's-themed episode to focus more on sexually transmitted infections and diseases. And, Santosh, you encouraged me last year to tackle this issue from a more sex-positive... Yeah, yeah. Sex is a beautiful and wonderful thing, and we should be much more encouraging and, you know, kind of loving. So this week, we're going to have a love-in, but... For those of you who do let small children listen to this show, there's going to be the usual (laughs) dose of immaturity, but there might be a few things that could lead to questions you don't want to get into. And we're not just talking birds and bees stuff. So 
There's your warning. <laughs> so before we get into the proper journal articles, I figured let's fire oh, off a yeah. few quickies for you. <laughs> Not too quick. I think <laughs> I want something longer than an eight-second story. We're going to start as some sexual mythbusters with a couple, I think, fairly commonly held misconceptions about sex. We have all heard that masturbation is bad for you, depending on what background you're coming from. It's going to give you hairy palms, make you go blind, uh, completely kill your sex drive, lead you to be possessed by demons. I mean, Myth. pick your favorites. In case there's any doubts, allow us to clear up a few things. One, there's no links between your genitals and your eyes. So try as you might, you're not going to lose the gift of vision by exploring your naughty bits. A lot of specialists argue there is literally no such thing as masturbating too often. It does bring a plethora of health benefits, which include released tension, eased menstrual cramps, and no less importantly, a roadmap for the body. Self-pleasure can help people feel more comfortable in their body, or for women can help them more readily achieve an orgasm and enable them to become better equipped to solicit the kind of attention that works best for them. For people who think that frequent masturbation can cause erectile dysfunction, this too is a false concern. In a worst case scenario, men may become used to certain practices during self-love that can then put them on autopilot during partnered sex. So... Let's say as a man, every single time you masturbate, you only give yourself a few minutes from first touch to ejaculation. That can get you conditioned. So a way to prevent this from happening, make your practice and your play as similar as possible. So gents, ladies, make sure you spend quality time with yourself rather than rushing through things. You deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> take your time. Take it easy. <laughs> quality over quantity. I'm actually going to put one extra myth on here, which actually wasn't on our original list, Josh, but I should speak as a pediatrician. There are a lot of parents out there who get really freaked out when their kid starts touching themselves. Little boys will start exploring very early on, pretty much as soon as they figure out that they can get their hands down there. Little girls as well, although not as often. But if they're not scratching, if they're actually, you know, kind of exploring and looking around and, you know, parents, if you're scared, don't be. Just let your kids know that that's not okay for, you know, around other people or in public. They can do that kind of in the privacy of their home. Never let them be scared or anxious about exploring themselves. That's one thing that I get asked all the time. Do little kids quote unquote masturbate? No, not in the way that adult humans, you know, sexually explore, but they are still figuring themselves out. So it's okay in their own privacy to touch every now and again and figure out what's going on down south. Now for our last quickie, as the myths giveth, so can the myth taketh away. Another favorite piece of sex lore is the <laughs> idea that women cannot get pregnant if they have sex while on their period. And while true that this scenario is highly unlikely, the possibility of pregnancy is not fully eliminated. And that depends largely on how long the individual's menstrual cycle is. We all know in most women, the cycle lasts approximately 28 days, with three to five of those days taken up by the actual menstruation, during which unfertilized eggs and uterine lining are eliminated. 
Women are most fertile during the ovulation stage of their menstrual cycle when fresh eggs mm-hmm. are produced. I'm going to avoid the easy chicken joke. Some women, however, have shorter cycles, which means their ovulation happens earlier. That coupled with the fact that sperm can live inside the human body for up to five days, and that's normal sperm, not artificially enhanced robosperm. That's a callback to a previous episode. Means that... Oh, yeah, yeah. Go back and listen to our robosperm episode for sure. Means that if the timing is right, sperm could hang out inside the female body for just long enough to survive the period and penetrate a fresh egg. So... If you plan to ease those menstrual cramps by having sex, you still may want to consider using a condom. For those who are really interested in how far that concept can go, go ahead and listen back to our episode on super pregnancy, which is when you get pregnant, when you're pregnant. Oh, I missed that one. That was before me, wasn't it? It was, yeah. (laughs) Before your idea as a host was conceived, Sandman. (laughs) It's an even more rare event. There are a few women out there who actually can have viable uh, ovulation while they're pregnant with another child who's already gestating in the uterus. And so, you know, mom and dad decide to have sex during that time and you get another pregnancy while you're pregnant. Super pregnancy. (laughs) That will bring us to our first story of the evening. Now that we've got those quickies out of the way, we can spend the remainder of the hour all satisfying all your medical needs. All night long. <laughs> in a study recently published in The Lancet, it turns out that we may have developed or at least repurposed a gonorrhea vaccine. <laughs> So sure. we have several species of Neisseria bacteria, uh, mostly in our mouths. And um, the scariest amongst these is Neisseria meningitidis. And it is the most famous for causing bacterial meningitis, um, which can be very deadly or uh, uh, disabling. So this little bacteria is really, really virile in that the initial symptoms look just like maybe a cold or, or, or kind of a bad flu, and then it progresses really quickly. We have long had a vaccine against several serotypes of Neisseria meningitidis, but it was only recently that we were able to develop a vaccine against a serogroup called serogroup B. This right now, Josh, is only administered in like selective groups of individuals here in the United States. It's not FDA approved for universal vaccination over here, although other countries are giving it to everybody. However, while, you know, other countries were trialing this vaccine and making sure that it worked and that it was preventing meningitis and sepsis from Neisseria meningitidis, they noticed an interesting corollary. When you were vaccinating populations, you are also seeing drops in a cousin Neisseria, the really nasty Neisseria gonorrhea. And this is the little bug which, as you guessed, it causes gonorrhea. Not an entirely surprising event that a vaccine un- against one species of a genus of bacteria could kind of cover the other species under that genus. Um, but it was kind of a really nice side effect. It didn't take a genus to figure that out. Aha, exactly. So now uh, 
if this is a real effect, that if you vaccinate against Neisseria meningitidis, that you lower rates of Neisseria gonorrhea in the same population, if this is a real effect, or if this is just a coincidence. Santosh, um, let me ask you really quickly, so I make sure we're clear. The way you describe it, it almost sounds like this is Mm -hmm. similar to the flu vaccine, right? Like there's many different strains of this bacteria that are out there. But the vaccine only protects well, under... You're saying that you want to protect against flu. You're hoping that your vaccine against flu A and flu B will also protect against other strains of the flu that are going around that year. But that's that's the a single virus, sure. influenza, with many different strains. These are actually two completely different bacteria, which are like somewhat evolutionarily related. They're they're close, but they're not as closely related as, say, like a flu A and a flu B. Kind of a reach to think that we would automatically cover against both with a single vaccine. Although both do have tendencies to occur in highly clustered groups of people living together, such as college or the military. So this is the first time a vaccine has shown any protection against gonorrhea, uh, and it is associated with reduced rates of gonorrhea diagnosis, even in people who are maybe not changing what could be construed as risky behaviors. So it's a proof of concept, but not necessarily something that is being actively developed or marketed at this time. It was more of a happy accident, which I think describes a lot of the sexual encounters of the people in this study. This is a a really great development in infectious diseases. Um, You always hope that when you put out engine that it's going to do more than is promised. And so this is nothing definitive yet, preliminary evidence. But the more that we can replicate these results and actually study this prospectively, meaning moving forward in a controlled fashion, rather than just looking retrospectively at cases so far, the more proof we'll have. And, you know, it it won't provide perfect protection, almost certainly, but it may help in manufacturing one day a true anti-gonococcal vaccine. That brings us on to the next story. And this is the moment when we're really just going to start going downhill. We haven't already? No, no, we've been professional so far. (laughs) No, no, we've been very good. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm just a little proud of us right now. But that's all about to end. That gonorrhea study was interesting because they did have a huge number of... uh, population <laughs> members to study. And you know what they say about studies with huge population. No, oh, for the love of God. <laughs> they say about studies with huge population. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll stop trying to segue and I'll just jump right into it. Given that public nudity is generally considered unacceptable in most of the modern world, people have long tried to come up with <laughs> other potential indicators to determine the size of a gentleman's ahem, endowment without actually seeing it. And of course, the tried and true method for doing this, as we have been taught, is to look at their cars. (laughs) (laughs) Be very true when going to the hospital. (laughs) The size of a gentleman's endowment can be judged by everything from how loud their car engine is, a full head of hair, (laughs) to of course, the tried and true, just look at the size of a man's hands and or feet. But does hand and foot size really (laughs) correlate to the length of the penis? No, no, it doesn't. All right. It just 
No. Studies have consistently shown the size of a guy's feet or the overall size of their hands is not related to an erect member's measurement. But. Always a but. A study published in. And please hold your laughter for just a moment. The Asian Journal of Andrology found that there is a body part that can correlate with the overall length of an individual's <laughs> penis. And now that we have every one of our male <laughs> listeners on the figurative edge of their seats, the ratio between the second and fourth digits on the hands demonstrates a strong correlation with penis length. And the specific, although slightly less sexy version of saying this in the study is, Univariate and multivariate analysis using mm-hmm. linear regression models, SNOR, show that only digit ratio is a significant predictive factor for stretched penile length. Stretched? Oh, as in. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to say that. So, so I stretched penile length. Um, usually, this is a mix up in translation. <laughs> when you're looking at penile length, you always have to look at the fully erect penile length of a virile person um, and not the flaccid length, because the flaccid length actually correlates to absolutely nothing. So, in a nutshell, haha, the lower the ratio, meaning how much shorter the index finger is than the ring finger, the longer the penis will probably be when erect. I will wait a moment while everyone looks at their hands to determine how much shorter their index finger is than their ring finger. We all know you're doing it. There's no reason. <laughs> and there's no shame in it. I'll never look at anyone else's hands the same way again now. Oh, the- <laughs> oh my God. Right? Or put an IV in. Like, <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Prof's going to be like, I couldn't help but notice you have a very interesting ring to index finger ratio. (laughs) Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So specifically, you can calculate your ratio by taking (laughs) the length of your index finger measured from the crease where it meets your hand all the way to just the tip and dividing it by the length of your ring finger. The shorter the index (laughs) finger is compared to the ring, the lower the ratio will be. And if you're a man the longer your penis probably is. Why is this? And by the way, this is a great example of correlation, not causation. All of you out there, yes. All of you right now who are like playing that little, oh, look at how short my index finger. It's not going to change anything, so cut it out. Don't cut it out. You take over. No, No. So why does this ratio correlate? Well, it has to do a lot with embryology. In the beginning, female and male genitals form pretty much the same. They develop from the same cluster of tissues, gonads, which is also like a friendly cheer for your genitals. Yay, (laughs) gonads, woo! In males, around seven to nine weeks of gestation, the gonads begin secreting two hormones, anti-malarian hormone and testosterone. Once the gonads begin secreting testosterone, Some of it gets transformed into another hormone called dihydrotestosterone or DHT. I'm not going to get into too too much of a deep dive here, but this DHT attaches to receptors on tissues that eventually develop and combine into the penis and scrotum. Penile growth in the womb is stimulated and affected by testosterone, DHT, and androgen receptors. What does this have to do with fingers? Uh Well, circulating testosterone in the womb affects other body parts as well. 
pertinent to the topic at hand, the ratio between the second and fourth digits. Why does it affect the digits differently? Receptors on your ring finger compared to your index finger has a few more androgen versus estrogen receptors. And that determines the spread of chondrocytes or bone cells that determine the length of your finger. So when you decrease the activation of androgen receptors during the week that your fingers develop, that's around week 13, you then decrease the length of your ring finger. This activation is attributed to the amount of testosterone and DHT circulating through the tiny fetus. So you can predict how much hormone exposure is there based on the ratio of these two fingers. That was a lot of science. The For some people, that I'll add here is that because we're looking at circulating <laughs> hormonal levels during embryology, this finger ratio um, also correlates in men and women with other psychiatric disorders, for instance. So things like depression or, you know, tendency for aggression, because, you know, we're talking about circulating hormone levels and its effect on genitalia and its correlation with finger size. Um, those are other possible determinants that you can get from, from looking at this same ratio. Now, again, it's a correlation. It's not a causation. But for any of you who are wondering, next time you want to <laughs> check out the size of someone's endowment, uh, just, you know, you can look at their hands, but you're going to have to get <laughs> real close. I'm sure you'll find an excuse if you want to. <laughs> Of course, we have brought this up before, but I'm sure after, now that everyone's off there measuring, they're all going to want to know, what is the average penis size? For what we're talking about male humans. Yes. Uh, not to be confused with gorillas who have the smallest known penises of all mammals. So you are... Really? Huh. Gorillas. Interesting. Yeah. Gorillas have a micro penis. Just to be clear, we're talking about those guys at the gym who are hooked up on roids, right? Nope, we're talking uh, about actual gorillas. Yeah, it's true. You know, b- believe it or not, you know, next time you're feeling kind of, uh, you know, emasculated or anything for any reason, just think about, you know, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room has a teeny little willy. Huh, interesting. <laughs> Steroid also can cause a degree of shrinkage, and we will we will get to that in a moment. But the Journal of Sexual Medicine that we have covered this in the past conducted a systematic review to create charts, bar charts, I'm guessing, of both flaccid and erect penile size measurements, which you had to have a measurement done by a health professional using a standard procedure and a minimum of 50 participants per sample and a whole bunch of other like super statistical sciencey stuff that frankly is less interesting to you than the end result. <laughs> so drum roll, please. <laughs> <laughs> the average length of a flaccid penis, and this is across several different regions of the world and cultures and races. So nobody's getting shown any favoritism here. The average length of a flaccid penis is about, 9.2 centimeters or 3.6 inches. The average length of a flaccid stretched penis, because of course there's going to be a subset who's like, no, no, I swear. 13.24 centimeters or about five inches. So just 
tugging on it gives it an extra <laughs> almost two inches. The average length of an erect penis is 13.1 centimeters or about five inches. So, and there will be, of course, regional <laughs> variation. And the average <laughs> circumference of an erect penis, because for everybody saying girth matters more than length, we'll give you those numbers too, is 11.66 centimeters or about 4.6 so inches. This is fascinating. I still like am wrapping my mind around well, this fact that you can get more can, lane well, I mean, stretched out corpus, than through a full uh, erection. That's cavernosum um, becomes rich, can't really that. pull uh, beyond that size. But when it is not engorged with blood, you know, you can stretch it out quite a bit. I do want to let everybody know that um, this data does come from a paper called Am I normal? Question mark. A systematic review and construction of nomograms for flaccid and erect penis length and circumference in up to fifteen thousand five hundred twenty-one <laughs> men. Does anyone else find it ironic? This is from a journal called BJU International, British Journal of Urology. Pull it together, gentlemen. When you pull it apart, you get an extra two inches. <laughs> At least according to BJU. <laughs> now that we've talked about stretching. Which yeah. makes me think of the, the Austin Powers penis pump. Like, oh, it's not mine, baby. One book, My Penis Pump and How Much I Love It by Austin Powers. The next thing we should also okay. mention, of course, is what are the causes of penis shrinkage? And this is more than just, you know, being in water on a cold day. <laughs> shrinkage is fairly widespread as men age, but there are many other reasons why a penis may shrink aside from aging. But we'll start with aging. So as men age, fatty deposits build up in the arteries and cause reduced blood flow to the penis. This results in muscle cells in the erectile tubes inside the penis becoming weaker. You do need that rush of blood, the transfer of blood from your upper brain to your lower brain as it is, to create the ability for you to pop a dopolis. The erectile tubes produce erections when they're engorged with blood. So if those tubes become obstructed, you have less blood flow and then smaller or fewer firm erections. This is actually very similar oh, wow. to some of the ways that people can develop plaques in their heart that could eventually lead to obstructions large enough to cause heart attacks. Mm. So it's the same kind of plaque buildup. And this is why, you know, we emphasize to people that uncontrolled diabetes, which can affect circulations, can lead to decreased <laughs> libido or even sexual dysfunction, because it's the exact same sort of plaque buildup, but on a microcirculation. Not micro sure, because sure. of any sort of endowment, but start, there are simply smaller vessels in your junk. Another yeah. possible reason for penis Jeez, shrinkage is man. a buildup of scar tissue caused by years of small injuries from sex no. and sports. The take-home lesson there, wear a cup. Sex and sports. I don't know. It would be kind of hard to have sex with a cup. Well, injuries from sports, wear a cup. But, you know, there are, there are people out there who enjoy a degree of pain but, with their yeah. pleasure. And I am not referring to those in Fifty Shades because that is just, it's an Nor abusive relationship. There's a very sense positive <laughs> BDSM world out there and none of it is accurately portrayed by those Fifty Shades movies. Another thing that can lead to shrinkage, weight gain particularly around the stomach, the beer gut or dad bod is a genuine concern for many men as they age. And although a man's penis may appear smaller with weight gain, it has not shrunk. The reason it may look that way is the penis is attached to the abdominal wall. 
And when the belly expands, it pulls the penis inward. If a man loses weight, his penis can regain its usual shape and size. So if that wasn't enough of an incentive to get off the couch and start exercising, I don't know what is. It's worth <laughs> mentioning that um, along with weight gain can come buildup of uh, fat and calcific material in blood vessels, which could lead to the first problem we talked about. And that actually could ultimately lead indirectly to erectile dysfunction. One of the cancers that men are uniquely susceptible to is prostate cancer. And men who have had the prostate gland <laughs> removed or a radical prostatectomy, and that radical meaning they take out the whole prostate, not like, yeah, dude, I'm totally gonna. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Remove my prostate. Woo! About 71% of men who undergo a radical prostatectomy experience some degree of penis shrinkage, but researchers don't entirely know why. They suspect it may be related to the urethral tube, which connects to the urinary bladder shortening during the prostatectomy. So basically shrinking your penis from the inside, you're kind of mm -hmm. removing some of that scaffold. One thing that does happen with surgery, when you cut through the prostate, you're also cutting through a lot of nerves that stimulate those areas of the body that's during sex and whatnot. And so part of it could also be secondary to nerve damage. Yeah. And, you know, last but not least, medications. Ross, you were spot on when you mentioned prolonged steroid use, especially anabolic steroids, the kind associated with a lot of sports abusing, sports abuses, can lead to penis shrinkage, as can some antidepressants or drugs prescribed to treat an enlarged prostate, and even medications like Adderall. Smoking too. So smoking is also associated with erectile dysfunction. Huh. And all of this is, again, smoking, chemicals from smoking can injure blood vessels in the penis, preventing the penis from filling with blood and stretching. So regardless of stimuli and effect on the brain, if the blood vessels are damaged, no amount of pornography or medications are going to allow you to achieve an erection. So again, smoking, it's not just bad for your lungs. I also just can't help but notice the irony here. People taking well, antidepressants, you know, I can't see how it, um, it, having sexual dysfunction would help make uh, them less depressed. Part of that is the <laughs> same type of neurotransmitters that you need to manipulate in order to, you know, help a person balance out and not be depressed are the same type of neurotransmitters that are involved in sexual arousal. So... Right now, we do not know how to affect one without affecting the other. But it is true that 
you know, with a successful trial of antidepressants in someone, you know, who's taking them regularly and who responds to them well, which is the majority of people taking antidepressants, they do quote unquote feel better, but then find that, you know, the, the percentage of those can't maintain an erection. And there are <laughs> other treatments like that. You know, if medications are causing the penis to shrink, adjustment and medication can reverse the shrinkage, which sounds so much cooler than it actually <laughs> is. It's not like, it's growing! <laughs> it makes me think of those uh, those old toys as kids, the shrinky dinks. Like, you just put them in water and they grow to ridiculous sizes. And then, you know, for some men who experience shrinkage from things like surgical <laughs> conditions, like prostate removal, the condition yes, may improve is. on its own within a few months to a year. And there is a form of physical therapy called penile rehabilitation. <laughs> huh, and really, I don't know that there's anything else I need huh. to say about that. That is fascinating. I don't think I've ever even heard of that one. Yeah, usually not a lot of physical <laughs> therapists uh in, in your standard hospital floor offering that particular service. But now that we've spent so much time on the men, it is only fair that we turn to the ladies and talk a little bit about their pleasure as well. Now, I'm sorry, women, I don't have specific statistics on the length of a flaccid or an erect clitoris or vaginal canal, but... There has been a number of studies on the female orgasm, and there's one actually that I found fascinating <laughs> about unlocking the mysteries of orgasm. It's, it's a good day to be studying female sexuality right now because I think we understand it better than we ever have in the past. Even neuroscientist Barry R. Komisarek, who studies brain activity during sexual response and orgasm, initially was pursuing other research when a quote-unquote incidental finding revealed that vaginal stimulation blocked pain in laboratory rats. Huh, go fig. In rats. Vaginal stimulation. Yeah. Huh. If you have an orgasm, you're not as likely to feel pain. Who could have guessed? Huh. But that led... Komisarek, Board of Governors Distinguished Service Professor at Rutgers University, to see if the same pain blocking occurred in human women. It did. And then to look for the nerve pathway at work. And this is actually really fascinating because at the time, and this study was originally conducted back in 2004, at the time, genital sensation was thought to reach the brain only through the spinal cord. So he studied five women with severed spinal cords, injuries that basically left them paralyzed from their lower body. And these were women who had been told that because you are paralyzed, you will never again be able to experience kind of sexual pleasure or an orgasm again. Just those nerve pathways are gone. And he went back and said, you know, let's let's explore this. He encouraged the women to use vaginal self-stimulation and then studied them in a functional MRI that actually tracks where blood goes. It's, it's an active tracking of activity in the brain while something is taking place. And these women felt not only stimulation, which they were told they should not have been able to feel, but pain blockage, and three of them experienced orgasm. They had been told their sex life was over. They wouldn't even be able to feel genital sensations. They had accepted it unquestioningly. And this gentleman kind of went around and just 
put them in an MRI, told them to masturbate, and found that there is an alternate pathway not reliant on the <laughs> spinal cord. And it, and it instead goes through the vagus nerve, a long cranial nerve that previously had never been shown to extend into the pelvis. Holy crap. So the vagus nerve, which we usually think about going as far as the stomach and stopping, seems to enervate all the way down to the pelvis. That would be awesome. If, if this is confirmed, this would be like a brand new anatomical discovery. Yeah. Basically, you have a direct connection from your brain straight to your genitals. See women, it's not just men. <laughs> Well, I mean, the vagus is an amazing nerve. I mean, uh, Praz, are do you are, are you involved with any of like vagal stir, uh, vagal nerve either stimulation or severing? If you know, if you need to cut that vagus nerve for any reason, you know, when you're producing too much stomach acid, or you know, uh, this this nerve seems to do everything up and down the body. It has a lot of functionality all over. It affects the heart. It affects your throat, your larynx. That's why you have to ask your doctor if your heart's healthy enough for sex. There you go. <laughs> it's all connected, right? Uh, but like you said, it also affects the stomach, parts of the intestines, and now even sex organs. Did they find, out of curiosity, a similar connection in men? So this study was specifically conducted on women because there have been a whole bunch of studies on men. And the fMRI, not only did it reveal kind of that there was this alternative pathway, but it then turned out to be the world's first evidence of where orgasm occurs in women's brains. Hmm. So since that pilot study in 2004, he's been using new and improved technology to identify the sequence of brain regional activity that leads up to, during, and after women's orgasms, and the map where you're receiving input from the clitoris, vagina, cervix, and uterus, and all those project in the brain. He's now also mapping men's genital sensations nice. and orgasms, which so far show that the penis, scrotum, and testicles all project sensation to different brain regions. His current work is meant to help people who are anorgasmic or who do not experience orgasm. Uh, and virtually nothing is known about it at the time other than that SSRIs, or antidepressants have a powerful effect on blocking orgasm. So they're trying to develop a method of biofeedback to enable people who have genital sensations but not orgasm to view their own brain activity, see where the blockage occurs, and then eventually learn to bypass the blockage by using meditation or controlling the related brain <laughs> yeah, This could be a huge breakthrough. <laughs> be, wait for it. <laughs> Mind-blowing. For all the jokes that we're making, that is oh, a fascinating study with a lot of potential moving forward. But I feel like we've been a little too mature. So let's let's knock it back just a notch and talk about another condition that is I hesitate to say entirely rare or entirely unknown but also not one that is maybe as accepted by the scientific community just yet. And it is an, from an article published in November 2017 in my Journal of Sexual Medicine. I mean, not my journal, but one of our favorite journals. And BJU. BJU. <laughs> it's, it's not the BJU. It's the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Is this the same and as a recent article talks about... 
P-O-I-S. No. So post-orgasmic illness syndrome, the original study that I came across or the original mention of this opened up almost like one of those drug commercials. Do you feel like every time you ejaculate, you come down with the flu for a few days? If so, you're not alone and you're not just imagining things. You might instead suffer from post-orgasmic illness syndrome, P-O-I-S, a rare and chronic disorder among men that manifests as flu-like and allergic symptoms following ejaculation. My first thought when I read this is, no wonder this flu season's been so long. (laughs) Sure, you snuggle up, absolutely. But in fact, this has nothing to do with the actual flu. However, it can mimic it in some ways. So the abstract of the paper says post-orgasmic illness syndrome is a rare but debilitating cluster of post-ejaculatory symptoms affecting primarily men. Now, since the original publication of this study, there has been a single case report of a woman who has had these similar symptoms, but largely it's a male disorder that is chronic and manifests as a constellation of flu-like and allergic symptoms such as runny nose, cough, muscle aches, diminished concentration, irritability that can occur within seconds, minutes, hours, or even days after ejaculation. And you may think to yourself, oh yeah, I feel like I got the flu right after I had sex recently. That's probably it. But this would be every single time these gentlemen ejaculate. It is, if not immediately, at least shortly followed by these symptom collections and therefore it negatively affects the life of patients by limiting sexual encounters dampening romantic prospects and affecting a lot of patients schedules Uh, different men experience a somewhat different combination intensity and duration of symptoms but whatever the manifestation is it remains relatively consistent for each individual so in some i mean i suppose it could be crying in others it could be severe muscle aches headaches or irritability. In others, it could be a runny nose. And most of these will disappear on their own after three to seven days, which happens to also be the length of how long most flu symptoms occur. There's about 50 reported cases of this that have been documented, and it's been broken down into two types. In some men, this occurs after their very first ejaculation, primary POIS, while for others, it doesn't develop until later in life. In both cases, they have to occur always or nearly always, meaning more than 90% of the time they orgasm in order to be diagnosed. When we are hot and bothered, when we are aroused, um, we don't really have blood shunting just to one area of our body. As all of you listeners probably know, you know, your your ears uh, kind of get flushed, your cheeks, and sometimes the same shunting of blood flow that happens to the genital region also happens in your nose. So you may even feel a little bit of like congestion or runny nose just from getting aroused. But that's very different from this particular syndrome, which is post-orgasmic or post-ejaculatory. So one might get mistaken with the other if the symptoms are mild. That's right. And your nose can become inflamed. Like when you have a runny nose, it's because blood vessels are becoming engorged as they try and bring more blood to that area when it is inflamed or irritated, which basically means every time you have a runny nose, it's the same cartilage tissue as in your penis. You get nose boners. (laughs) Nose boner. Nose boners. I love it. 
Now, here's the real mystery behind all of this. Not too long ago, we were talking about masturbation and how orgasm has a lot of positive effects in the body, like temporarily boosting immunity. So one might wonder, well, why are people having flu-like symptoms when they have these orgasms? The issue here seems to be focused among our direct reaction to semen itself, right? Yeah, so the causes, the main theory is that Post-orgasmic illness is an autoimmune or allergic reaction to a substance in the man's semen. So these men are allergic to their own semen. And that means some of the treatments have varied from everything from antihistamines to non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to desensitization. And Santosh, have you ever had to conduct a desensitization to an allergy for anything on a patient? So um, we were back in the day before we had, for food allergies primarily, before we had like oral desensitization where you could give someone like a little, for instance, like a little bit of peanut puree in in dilutions until um, they were no longer allergic to the peanut. We would actually give little micro injections just below the skin. So like a subcutaneous injection of the offending substance. And you would start with it um, almost like reverse reverse homeopathy. You would, you would start with it really, really dilute, and then you'd give it under the skin more and more and more concentrated so that the body became tolerant of this thing that previously it treated as a, you know, like a disease causing agent and tried to fight it. So that's the way it would actually do. I can actually see the dawning realization in some of our listeners' faces. That's, mm-hmm. that's how strong it is coming through the airwaves as you realize that this hyposensitization Uh or this desensitization therapy, when it's thought that your own sperm is what you are allergic to, (laughs) involves progressively injecting these men with their own sperm (laughs) in gradually increasing concentrations over time until the body adjusts to it. Now, for that added level of horror... There's only one source for these men to obtain the sperm, which will then be objected into them. So they then have to put themselves through an orgasm, which will cause all of this same symptom and suffering to make enough amounts for it to then be injected back into them. And (laughs) two of the patients in the study who noted some improvement in symptoms only noted them after 15 and 31 months, months of injections. It's like almost three years of doing this to see an effect. So it it does take a long time. And I actually don't know the timescales that are used currently for things like food allergies or for pollens or, you know, bee venom or things like that. But it, it's not a short period of time. It's not like weeks. So desensitization does take a long time because you have to, <laughs> you have to start low and go slow. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I do have to say worth mentioning, injecting uh, sperm isn't like that far of a stretch. Are you guys familiar with the drug protamine by any chance? That is what we use to reverse uh, heparin, uh, heparin allergies, correct, Pros? Okay, before this turns That's into exactly a dick-waving right. contest. I use it all the time. I used it earlier today. <laughs> I shave with um, it. You know, I just I slap it on my, <laughs> I pour it in my <laughs> breakfast cereal. <laughs> so do you guys know where protamine comes from? Horse semen. 
Um, oh, you know what? Not I horse. remember this. Yes, now that you're saying it. So not human. Semen? No, not cow. Fish semen. We actually take fish semen, extract this chemical, and inject it into people during their heart surgeries and several other procedures. Now, granted, it's not quite as traumatic as like injecting people wow. with their own semen that we know is going to cause bad results. But yeah. <laughs> um, it's not as far-fetched of an idea as most people might realize. Protamine comes from fish semen? Wow. <laughs> okay, maybe it is pretty far-fetched. But <laughs> there's so much potential for the future. Oh, nice. It's a whole other kind of sushi, my friend. Nose boners from the sushi. <laughs> oh, actually... I do. I do want to ask since we have Doctor Pros yes, here. Yes, absolutely. You know, there are going to be Valentines out yes. there who have like their appendix out or something like that. The surgical stuff aside, right? So you don't want to like unravel your stitches or something like that. But if you if you've gone under general anesthesia, is this going to affect your ability to have sex, or should you wait for a while before you have sex, or have you ever had to have that conversation? Right. To be honest, no, I've never had that conversation with uh, any of my patients. That's usually not the question that um, many people have in mind. I would imagine, though, that that it would be like anything else. Typically, we tell patients that, well, don't try to operate any heavy machinery for, I don't know, 24 hours after coming out of anesthesia. (laughs) And I imagine... It would be a similar principle to when they're operating heavy machinery in their bedrooms. Hi-yo! But their machinery may not be quite so heavy for some time. So, Gotcha. um, Gotcha. But they should still follow their surgeon's directions. You know, if they've had surgery someplace where that type of motion in the oceans might uh, separate some stitches. And for the love of God... Ostomies are not bonus holes. Just, I'm just throwing that out there. For the love of God. You know what? He's saying that only because, yes, we've all, all seen that particular sexual injury. We're very sad to say. But it would not be a true Valentine's Day episode without a little bit of poetry. And it wouldn't be a true travel medicine episode. Valentine's episode if that poetry wasn't medically related. So I present to you a dramatic reading about syphilis, which, as we learned in a previous episode, was named for an Italian shepherd in an epic poem. This one's a little bit less epic, a little bit more limerick. (laughs) Ahem. So, gentlemen, see how many symptoms you recognize, and then we'll move on to our just the tip. There was a young man from Black Bay who thought syphilis just went away. He believed that a shanker was only a canker that healed in a week and a day. But now he has acne vulgaris, or whatever they call it in Paris, on his skin and his spread from his feet to his head, and his friends want to know where his hair is. But there's more to his terrible plight. For his pupils won't close in the light. His heart is cavorting, his wife is aborting, and he squints through his gun barrel sight. Arthralgia cuts into his slumber. His aorta is in need of a plumber. But now he has tabies and saber-shinned babies, while of gummus he has quite a number. He's been treated in every known way, but his spirochetes grow day by day. He's developed paresis, has long talks with Jesus, and thinks he's the queen of the May. That's awesome. 
That concludes our dramatic reading. <laughs> uh, all right. I'll take the first verse. The primary symptom of syphilis is the chancre, which is a painless ulcer, usually in the genital region. He, uh, he found the chancre, this painless ulcer, and because it was painless, he ignored it. And yeah, it lasts about, uh, you know, eight to nine days, and then it disappears. It heals all on its own. So that's the first verse. The second verse appears to be talking about the second stage, which can happen sometime after the first stage uh, occurs. During the second stage of syphilis, one develops a rash, which I believe starts at the hands or the wrists and then spreads inwards towards the body. It can be weeks to months. And then one other thing, which is the last line of the second verse. Alopecia. We've got. We're starting into like neuro, you know, uh, tertiary syphilis and and some cool neurological findings. So his pupils won't close in the light. This is the Argyle Robertson pupil, or an afferent pupillary defect. Um, his heart is cavorting. So we've got arrhythmias and rhythm disturbances, and his wife is aborting. <laughs> Terrible. So miscarriages, and he squints through his gun barrel sight, which is you know he's having trouble seeing also because of his Argyle Robertson pupil, which is also known as the prostitute's pupil because it will accommodate but not react. Going on to verse 4, we talk about the joint pain and arthralgias, which is uh, syphilis-related arthritis that can occur. But it's aorta. Aortic root dissections can happen in advanced stages of syphilis. So peripheral neuropathy, sabration babies going on, those babies that aren't, quote, aborted, are born with um, musculoskeletal deformities. Gammas are the skin lesions um, and actually brain lesions as well that um, start to develop. Which brings us to the final verse as the spirochete load grows and syphilis remains untreated, it can ultimately work its way into the brain and lead to insanity. And uh, that concludes this journal club. We deserve to have just the tip. And this time, it's coming to you straight from the Sandman. So why don't you whisper those sweet nothings into our ear? <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, this sandman was building sand castles out on the other side of the world. I recently took a trip with my wife to visit her family over in the Philippines, um, an island called Cebu. The Philippines, as, you, as some of you may know, is an archipelago with thousands and thousands of islands. Whereas Manila, the big city in the Philippines, is known for being a more urban and more developed Cebu is more known for having beaches and resorts and just relaxing and enjoying the ocean and scenery in that respect. It's particularly noticeable for one day that we went out. One day, we swam with whale sharks, which was amazing. They're huge, even larger uh, next to them in person. They're very harmless creatures. Thankfully, like it's relatively shallow water that you're swimming in and relatively close to the shore. They really don't bother you. They're very peaceful animals, although they do say not to touch them. Later on that day, we went snorkeling, saw all the various flora and fauna living under the sea. And then uh, to cap off the day, we actually went to a fresh waterfall. This waterfall is actually light and it's it's very cold water, which is great because it's 87 degrees and sunny in the Philippines this time of year. A really fun, adventurous time. Waterfall first, then whale sharks, and then snorkeling in that order. 
Well, Sandman, I'm glad you got to wear your chinelas and maybe visit a jolly bee and get some hollow hollow. That concludes this week's episode. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, as well as links to the sources for all of this week's stories. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me, with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. And until next time, as always... Happy travels. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.